Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. Glad everybody is here with me today. In today's episode of the Coopcast, it is another biomechanics focused one. This one all about how we generate force and how we can run uphill faster. Because let's face it, everybody wants to do that. My conversation today is with PhD biomechanics researcher and professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Val. Walter Hookammer. And Walter has this incredibly unique experience where he's worked on the roadside and in particular with some of the aspects dealing with the Nike Sub 2 project and also on the trail and steep running side with his work previously at the University of Colorado Boulder with their steep treadmill and those listeners that will be familiar with the conversations that I had with Jackson Brill and Roger Crom on that particular aspect. And he can tie all of those things together. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. It was a really good one. We recorded it actually in the midst of recording the audiobook version of Training Essentials for Ultra Running 2, where Valter also makes a guest appearance there. You guys will have to wait on bated breath for that to come out. It's going to be maybe, I don't know, four or six more weeks before it is. And uh, he, uh, he has an awesome contribution in that particular book. I cannot wait to release it as an aside. But anyway, enough about that. Here it is. Here's my conversation with Walter Hukamer, all about biomechanics of running uphill, downhill, how they're different, and how we can get better. I do want to know, before we get into things properly, so do you have the steep treadmill, or are you in like negotiations with the University of Colorado to actually get it? Where is it right now? It it is in Boulder, um, but we we have agreed on everything. It's just um, it's it's a it's a beast, right? So it's it's not just uh, drop it off at the FedEx and it and we'll get here. <laughs> so we're we're looking into best ways to ship it. Talking to maybe some of my grad students go for a road trip with a van or something like that. So we're still in the process of uh, figuring out how to get it here, but. Um, it will be here eventually. The the listeners will remember the podcast that I did with uh, Roger Crom, um, who's, I, I, I mean, he's emeritus right now, so it's not even really him, but we referenced the steep treadmill a little bit, and he described the construction of it uh, very well. So I think the, the listeners that do remember that, they can conceptualize that it's not something that you just put in a box and ship. First off, it's a treadmill, yeah. but second, it's a really be it's a really beefy one at that exactly so yeah but um yeah i was just talking to a student too and we were sort of like yeah when if we have the treadmill we could do that so i, I hope <laughs> that uh in the next few uh before next fall it, it gets here so we can do that actually yeah. well we're going to talk a little bit later about how you have used the steep treadmill and how you want to use the st- steep treadmill and what the impacts are for for trail and ultra runners but I kind of want to start out with some just running economy basics because a lot of the listeners are, are lay, lay listeners. Um, and you've done a lot of research on how different things can impact running economy. And I've always thought that this is like a Humpty Dumpty problem, right? Where we're trying to isolate, okay, what does arm swing cost? What does leg swing cost? What does adding mass in these particular areas cost and things like that? And then eventually all these, you know, parts of Humpty Dumpty get put back together into this picture of running economy. Um, you're involved in a really cool study where you changed the mass of, sh- of the shoes that athletes were going to run in and you measured performance in running economy that way, but you did it in a really, in a really clever, almost, uh, uh, subversive type of way. Why don't you describe that research project to the listeners to start out with? Yeah. So, so that was a really fun project. So basically, yeah, we, as scientists, we like to test how things affect running economy. So running economy is sort of your energy cost of running. And we know, I mean, theoretically, it makes sense if, if you run in a way that costs you less energy measured in a lab, then you can probably run fast, right? But then one-to-one relationship, um, we, we didn't necessarily know that at that time. So even though we had a lot of research that everybody has been doing in a lab setting, controlled environment, come into the lab, you test shoe A versus shoe B quickly. Um, but then we, we don't necessarily um, 
let's say example one two saves you four percent metabolic energy your running economy is four percent better does that mean we can run four percent faster right and um we uh, that that was sort of the, the big question for that study so to do that and that was before we we we, we had that shoe that did actually four percent but sort of to to set that framework we wanted to know um all of these things we do in a lab, do they actually translate to to running faster and by how much? So that's sort of the the question we had. And then the way we went about it um, was we, we took a, a pretty consistent intervention. So shoe mass, we already know since the early 80s, uh, 1980s, that if you have a heavier shoe, uh, usually when uh, we make it 100 grams heavier, so the shoe on each side, so a general shoe is like, 250 grams maybe a trainer um and then we if you add 100 grams to that shoe you're going to be uh using uh one percent more energy um so that's sort of the other background that we had at that time and then we like okay so let's do that again make some shoes have a control shoe make it 100 gram heavier and have a really beefy one that's 300 grams heavier and then test if that still is true that it's about one percent more energy and three percent more energy and then see if actually people run slower right because it's it's a heavier shoe and if they run slower is it going to be one percent at three percent um is it the same is it a one-to-one relation is it going to be slightly less and that's sort of um what we did uh and then as you said uh we had to sort of deceive people because um, on the one side, we had our lab test, on the other side, we had the time trials. And if you show up for a time trial to see how fast you can run with the shoe and you get there and I'm the researcher and I say, okay, today you're going to be running in this heavy shoe. Now run <laughs> as fast as you can. And then the next week you show up and I say like, oh, today we got this very fast, lightweight shoe. Now let's see how fast you can run with this one. Right. Then just because of the fact that I just told you that it was a heavy shoe or a very light shoe, you're probably going to be running slightly faster or slower because you expect something, right? So we didn't want any of that. So to prevent that, we had to uh, sort of leave all the runners sort of in the unknown about why they even were doing time trials <laughs> and what was going on. And, and they didn't even know that was about shoes. That was the whole goal. So did any of them um, pick up? So, so then we had to do a lot of... No, yeah. no, no. Go, go, go ahead. I want you to describe the research protocol a little bit. So it's it's a ruse essentially. Yeah, so, so, they didn't so, know the shoes were heavier. Yeah. No, they they came in and they thought we were gonna do a study on the rep, uh, repeatability of time trials and if we could predict time trial performance based on lab based measures of VO two max and running economy. And they didn't know it was about shoes, but we were like, oh. Nike is funding this research and they have these shoes. We want you to wear these. And so the thing, what, what we did, we had three shoes, three pairs of shoes in each size that looked exactly the same. And then we didn't just um, put a beefy mass on it, but uh, we really hit the, some lead BBs in the tongue of the shoe and, and then some in the side pockets. There were some double layered um, shoes where the, the, the BBs were hidden. And then the other thing is um, that, uh, so they looked all the same. You wear the one shoe the one week and the other shoe the other week. And if they're on your feet, you don't necessarily feel a difference. Uh, but we all know if you if you have a shoe in your hand, you can, you know, you, you pick up the mask pretty quickly, right? Everybody in a running store uh, right. walks up to the wall and picks up and sort of feels, is it a heavy or a light shoe? So that was the thing we had to uh, avoid too. So we had to come up with another route to make sure that the people weren't just putting on a shoe and, and feeling how heavy it was. So um, there we um, we came up with the idea of using some sort of fake IMU accelerometer uh, unit that uh, we then, um, so the, the person came in, took off their shoes, they sat down on a chair and we kneeled and, and placed this it was actually not even a real accelerometer. It's just a 3D printed empty thing that we placed. <laughs> and we said, like, we need to precisely put this on, on on this bone in your foot. And it needs to be here. And it's really delicate and sensitive. It needs to be here. So let me 
pull on your sock over it and it seems to be in the right spot. Now let me put on the shoe and then put on the other shoe and now you can lace it up. Um, so <laughs> at that point, the runner has shoes on, didn't touch them with their hands. And, um, and, and interestingly enough, people are pretty bad at feeling shoe mass on their feet if, if you're not just doing the one shoe first and then a minute later the other shoe. This is a week apart and they had no idea that we did even do anything with the shoes. So they weren't uh, cued to, to sort of feel it. So it worked really well. Um, people had no idea we were doing this. They thought they were doing time trials, repeatability studies. Um, we, we did sort of gave them that um, accelerometer on their feet. Also afterwards, obviously, we had to take it off carefully. So let me take right. off your shoes and then put them away so they don't uh, put, uh, t- pick them up and weigh them. Um, so, yeah, th- it worked. Um, people had no clue we were doing this. And so this was all for the time trials. And then in the final visit, and what was, we what was the time the trial, by the way, to actually measure running economy? What was the time trial, by the way? Because I think that's okay, important yeah, the time trial. So. Yeah, so for the time trials, we did uh, a three-kilometer time trial on the indoor track at um, Chio Boulder. So uh, this is actually the old one um, before we had the fancy new one. Um, this is the um, uh, the, the, the dark-shaded um, uh, t- uh, indoor track um, where um, it's a 200-meter unbanked track. Um, so we were in there... Um, um, People were doing a time trial, so they know it was a 3K. These were all experienced runners. They had run a 3K before, or at least a 5K. Um, and um, well, there, there were some other things to the study. Like we, we, we they couldn't wear a watch, so they, they, they weren't pacing themselves. Right. Um, we, uh, we took all their splits. Um, we didn't want to like get overexcited ourselves, sort of being really excited in the in the, in the in the light shoe or less excited in the heavy shoe so we scripted our cheering script and every time they came through <laughs> it was it was really a surreal experience because people were in there by themselves doing a time trial we as researchers couldn't get too excited um so they were just plugging away on their 15 laps and every time they came by we say we had the script, so we either said "good job" or "nice one," still looking good, going strong. But every week, we said exactly the same thing at exactly the same lap, um, so that they didn't get um, sort of biased by, by our own uh, excitement or, or other things. Um, so, so we did three of those, like I said. So we had a control shoe, a hundred gram heavier pair, and another pair that was three hundred grams heavier per shoe as well. Three weeks apart. And then, so 3K, so I think some folks ran about nine minutes. Some folks ran about 12 minutes. We, we had sort of that range. Um, and then we, we did see that uh, afterwards when we looked at the data that indeed with the heavier shoe, they were running slower. So at least that worked. And then going back to sort of um, how they weren't supposed to know about uh, the shoe mass, then in, in the final visit, they came to the lab and we did running economy. And running economy, you kind of want to do it in one session because you have your analyzers and you calibrate it and you have your day-to-day variability and, and heart rate and, and, and everything else, your training of the day before. So at that point, we had to do, we, 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 we choose to do it in one session, which meant we had to change their shoes within one session too. Uh, and we were still trying them to not to pick up on that, but you can do that once. Like they run on the treadmill and chew A, and then they come up and so oh, there was something with that accelerometer there. Let me check it, <laughs> and then you sort of quickly try to sh- switch shoes behind your back, like a magician. Um, but if you do that once or twice, it's at some yeah. Um, but most people sort of after two or three times we did that picked up and was like, wait a minute, there's something with these shoes because why do I need to take them <laughs> off all the time? And um, and then it was still interesting to see that even that they know that it was something with the shoes, um, th- th- some of them still didn't know that the ones were heavier. They were like, oh, I've, uh, there's something with, is this, is this a different art support or, or what's going on here? Uh um, so, so it worked really well, sort of confirming, again, if you have shoes on your feet, you don't always have 
good sensation of how heavy they are. Um, but the whole context of this, and we can jump to the actual conclusions. I, I just wanted to tell, I, I wanted the listeners to hear the story of how how much deception was going on for this particular yeah. piece of research. Because I thought, I mean, there was a lot of point. There's a lot of points of deception too. I mean, it's on the track, it's on the treadmill. You're measuring running economy. You're measuring actual performance. The context of all of this is three kilometer performance and running economy at sub maximal speeds which i think is important for the listeners to kind of understand it's not the typical long slow distance that we talk about in ultra marathon running but what was the what's the nickel version of the results from this how much did the extra mass actually impact running economy yeah so we, we sort of confirmed our long known that adding 100 grams per shoe um, worsens your running economy about one percent now interestingly enough people didn't run 1% slower. And um, sort of in the paper, we, we, we spent a whole story about why we thought that, that it was less, but it, it actually took a couple of years for us to fully realize that it actually made sense. And, and that, that's why we're seeing it now too in, in, in the marathon too, with the 4% shoe, um, it, it's, it's less. So there, there's something with the relationship between energy and velocity and air resistance and things like that. But overall, sort of, um, we, we do see that there is an effect, but the effect in speed, uh, in performance that we see is, depending on your level of running, is, is about two-thirds to, to, to 80% um, of, of your normal impact of, of the footwear or whatever you, your intervention is. Um, so, so yeah, it was really cool, and it was um, good to see that, that it that does translate but uh, it wasn't a one-to-one -one that we always expected. And even when we did the study, we were still expecting it until later we realized, oh, it, it actually makes sense. It's not a one-to-one. -one. Well, and here's the translatable point that's going to bring us to the second part of this conversation. You also did a lot of work with Roger on some of the initial calculations for Nike's Breaking 2 project, which... Uh, started, which started out as just a theory, right? A long time ago, even before Nike got involved, that we could run a sub two hour marathon. Then the researchers at Nike and uh, I had a I had a podcast with their uh, uh, with their research lead uh, several weeks ago that I'll link that I'll link in the show notes. But they got together in the same vein and said, "Listen, if we have the right constellation of variables." We have the right athletes, we have the right condition, we have the right equipment, we have the right nutrition, we have the right weather, all of these things, we, we've, got a we've actually got a shot at this. But you did a tremendous amount of work in actually mathematically calculating how all of those, how all of these things could come together, how Humpty Dumpty can actually come back together and produce a sub two hour marathon. What were the major... I mean, I can't even say major because it seems like it was just a lot of little things. But what were some of the things that went into this, like, you know, goulash of sub two hour marathon yeah. that you eventually predicted? Yeah. So I think the that that study uh, really resulted out of, of, of the one we just discussed. Sort of knowing like, OK, if, if we need to run two and a half minutes faster, we need to sort of run. Uh, or we need to run three minutes faster at that time, right? So we, we needed to improve running economy about 3%-ish based on knowing that this is what you need to run that much faster. And um, and then we just started thinking, what all, what, what all is there that we can do? What can we do to make people run faster? And we sort of focused on sort of the fundamental biomechanical understanding of running and focusing what's the most important thing and the most important thing is kind of like the energy you take to to just run, which means you have to support your body weight over a short period of time when your foot is on the ground. And that's the most important one. And unfortunately, also the one that's un impossible to change, right? So we came up with the scenario of running it on Mars or, or maybe <laughs> find a place on Earth with the lowest gravity. Um, <laughs> But because because otherwise, I mean, you, you you can't necessarily change the gravity or or, or right, running right. fundamentally, right? So 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 uh, we we did some we 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 I think we we looked up the, the the place with lowest gravity, and I think it's probably Mount Everest, which 
because it's further from the center of the earth right um but it, as you all know um at mount everest because of the elevation uh, and the oxygen pressure that's not going to work um so um so that that was the most sort of that we started there and said okay that that's not possible it's the most it's you get the biggest bang for your buck, but there is no buck because you can't do anything about <laughs> it's gravity. It's a non-starter. Um, and, yeah. Um, so then we like, okay, what's the, the second biggest thing? And and that is sort of like, yeah, moving forward. And, and that's related to air resistance. Um, and um, there's two ways or a couple of ways to deal with it. So we have either tailwind, uh, you draft behind other runners, um, or you just sort of use gravity in your advantage and you run downhill and sort of we we quantified all these options um and then there are some rules to the marathon and, and we, we also did for this paper we sort of like let's try to do this within the, the world athletics regulations for marathon so a point to point is not necessarily allowed for world record purposes uh or fresh pacers are also not allowed um so basically all the some of the things that they did in, in, in Vienna when uh, Kipchoge broke the two-hour marathon, it, it's still not the official world record, right? right. Because he, he used these fresh pacers and, uh, and maybe the footwear. But um, So we sort of said, okay, can we do it within the rules? So we sort of said, okay, you can do a point-to-point with a full tailwind, but maybe we can find a loop where you go as far as part from A to B as the rules allow, and there you have the tailwind, and then the other part you just need to run in a shielded environment or um, between trees or something like that um, and then again for the pacing too we said like okay ideally you have fresh pacers is not allowed can we sort of make some sort of basically cycling based approach where people take turns in the lead and then they 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 sort of uh, recover back in a, in a, behind the other runner so sort of uh, a track pursuit or, or some rotation um, pacing line where people um, take their turn and run it ahead, take the wind, and then go back to the back of the pack and recover. Um, so th- those were for us sort the, of the, the scenarios we uh, explored. And then the, the other one finally was the footwear, which was an interesting study by itself because at that time we had already seen the prototypes, but that was still all on the down low. We yeah, were yeah. not supposed to talk about that. So we had to sort of play down the role of footwear in that review because at that point there, there were there was no existing scenario of saying like hey you can make shoes a lot better we just like we knew that the shoes that Kimeta was wearing when he set the world record were fairly heavy so we just said like oh let's make those shoes slightly less heavy uh, and that's probably all you can do even though we already knew well you you can come up with a new foam or a carbon fiber plate and and it probably can can do something extra but at that point um we didn't have that data yet, so we didn't talk about it. And so the the result of all of this, of putting the running economy and running performance Humpty Dumpty back together, is you theorize that, yeah, it actually is possible for a human to run under two hours in the marathon if we, ha- if we line up all the variables, we line up all the stars, and... I remember when that I remember when that paper came out and you lived it so I'll let you you tell the story. It was not I mean it was not without controversy is kind of the wrong word. It ruffled people's feathers unnecessarily because there's the because it's not a competition, right? And that that was the knock that ultimately became of the these projects, which kind of stemmed from this initial piece of research that you did. What was it like kind of living that out? Because you're a scientist, right? You're an academic. You're trying to solve problems and things like that. And then once the event kind of takes over, that's a different kind of a different animal. But like, what was it like on your end, like seeing your research play out in that way? Yeah, and. That, that was definitely an interesting story. So a lot of things happened in parallel. So some of the, the, the people that read our paper are like, yeah, obviously, if you run downhill, you can run under right. two hours. Right. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I, none of these ideas were necessarily things that we thought of. We just quantified it the best way we could. And then the other part was like, and, and that's where Roger sort of might have uh, fooled me in a way. But so 
at that point, I, I had no idea that Nike was planning this, right? So I was just working on this together with Chris Ariano and, 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 and Roger Crom out of being a running scientist and, and just liking this idea um, because other people had talked about two-hour marathons before and we thought that, yes, sometime in the next 20 years, something is going to happen. And we say, let's see if we can quantify if it's possible now. And then while we're in this process, um, uh, and Roger probably knew all along, but never told me, um, there is this <laughs> Nike press release that says, hey, we're going to do this in May. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> um, so then we quickly uh, wrapped up our paper and, and sent it out so that um, at least we we weren't the guys that after it happened sort of said like, hey, it's possible. Um, so yeah, we 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 set out the paper um nike had announced that it was possible and that sort of gave this whole uh idea about like yeah is it just about the records and and uh, and, and how are we going to do with it but for us as scientists it was just really great to see if we work as a team and put the best runners together and 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 try to like yeah we, we use all these major marathons and we know that boston is point to point and downhill isn't great and and probably newton hills are are not at the best location um so why don't we design a course that can have people run as fast as they can obviously that's it takes away a lot of the um sort of history of some of these courses as well so there's this sort of trade-off um but as scientists where it's more like yeah why why would you run course um and that's why we, uh, yeah, we got excited about it. And it's interesting you see it again. So first they tried it in Monza, then right. um, they uh, Kipchoge broke it in, in Vienna. But now recently um, there were other races on, on really close, yeah. short courses where they control everything as flat as possible. So both in um, the Marathon Project and, and, and recently in the Netherlands, uh, sort of the replacement of the Hamburg marathon that was canceled. They went to an airport again and, and just um, took a course that, that is as flat as possible and with, with very few turns. Uh, and we do see that people are running faster, again, for various reasons, one of them being the course design. Yeah, and the ultra-running audience will recognize Jim Walmsley's recent 100-kilometer world record attempt that was uh, put on by Hoka is kind of in that same vein where you're just trying to optimize optimize all the variables. One quick point of clarification before they, before there's like some sort of, you know, uh, theorized beef between you and Roger. We all love each other. <laughs> That's, you, you were a former student of Roger's. And there's the utmost respect between uh, you and him, although sometimes there's NDAs that the lawyers make you sign when you're working in these projects where you can't tell, you know, somebody who you who you work with what's actually going on. <laughs> so this concept of putting Humpty Dumpty together in a road running situation or a marathon situation, I kind of feel like it's trail and ultra running's time to start to do that as well where we're not only looking at, we're kind of like looking at performance globally. And I just did a really interesting uh, uh, podcast with uh, Guy Millet, who has initially come up with some ultramarathon framework in terms of how, how performance actually works, which is much different than in a marathon context. But in terms of biomechanics, which is your, which is your wheelhouse, we're starting to kind of do the same things where we're looking at, okay, what does it take to generate force uphill? What does economy look like in an uphill condition or in a downhill condition? And we're breaking the, we're breaking those specific ways of locomoting apart to try to determine what influences what. And all ultra runners are going to be concerned with with the uphill condition because people either think they climb great or they climb sucky and they want to be able to improve that. So some of the work that you did is looking at particularly force generation in an uphill condition and trying to figure out what can what it, what are the contributing elements to generating force in this uphill condition. What can, what can we learn from some of that research? Yeah. So so that um, was. One of the first studies I did, and um, that that it's mainly sort of a fundamental physics, bringing physics back to running biomechanics sort of project. Um, but uh, I think the the uh, 
I think the biggest takeaways from that research where we basically just quantified the change in energy cost of running with grade and speed and, and, and sort of measured some ground reaction forces. Um, the biggest takeaway from that is that, um, I mean, it's different, right? So for cycling, it doesn't really necessarily matter if you're using all the power you put at the pedals to overcome air resistance or to go uphill. Um, however, for running, uh, there's a huge difference between level running and uphill running. And um, we try to, to take it apart. We, we didn't necessarily take it apart as best. Or like it, Again, phys- we, we couldn't because of physics and, and, and physiology. But we were sort of going back and in like, well, if you look at this data and think about it from a physics perspective, then this could very well be the case. And, and the downside of the study was we, we can't necessarily test that directly because um, if you, for example, start pulling people upwards when they run uphill, <laughs> um, you're changing a lot at the same time, right? So um, we, we, we did a lot of these experiments before for level running right. to find out how much... Uh, is the cost of, of supporting your body weight versus how much is the cost of propelling yourself versus leg swing versus arm swing. Um, for uphill, it's all there, including going up. And um, the thing with going uphill uh, and going up during uphill running is that you basically go up by going forward. So now they're mixed up. So going forward also contributes to going up. Right. And uh, you can't take the two apart. And that sort of makes this really tricky um, uh, from a scientific perspective to to find out what's more important. And then because uh, going forward in level running, um, when you don't go too fast, there, there's nothing like that you lose energy to. There's a little bit of air resistance, but for most of us, that's, that's not too much. So mainly what we're doing is just bouncing around. Um, mm. and, and the cost of running is really involved in the bounce of that. And not necessarily in going forward. For uphill running, um, there is that part, and there is the part where the forward going goes uphill. So, um, when we want to quantify the energy cost of actually gaining vertical potential energy, so raising your your body uphill in gravity, um, it gets confusing because. Um, the part where you go forward is now different than it was when it was in, in level running. And, and we sort of come up with the framework to, to place that. But basically, um, it's still it's still a concept. And we like I said, we can't separate the two. So it's, it's mainly just a different way to look at it. But it does, for me, explain, uh, for example, when, when I'm out on a run and there's somebody on a bike commuting and we go uphill, it's a long road. So on the level, they pass me. But then we go to uh, we come to a hill, and actually I, I start to make up on them. So, um, relatively, uphill running is easier than uphill cycling. Um, and I mean, I think people have experienced that, right? Uh, you 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 can imagine that if you have a, an overpass on a road or something, you you actually do gain on that cyclist it, it, it it's not supposed to be somebody on a road bike who's out there for exercise because they're going to weigh faster but if somebody is commuting sort of going slightly faster than you run as soon as you hit that hill you, you will see that you you're going to gain on them because for you as a runner the uphill is not as much harder um as it will slow the cyclist down and and that's related to to that that sort of distinguished between the cycling and the running again where for level running um the forward backward motion is sort of not necessarily measuring for uphill it is but at the same time it helps with going up and i mean i'm butchering this explanation and i've tried before and it's really it's hard complicated um, so I, yeah. I i don't think there's a better way to get it yeah i think the it's way basically the way a lot of runners will conceptualize it is is that level running is harder from a musculoskeletal uh, standpoint. And it is that way because the impact forces are higher, right? Every time you hit the ground, it's in anywhere between 2.5 or 2.7 times your body weight. Uphill running tends to be cardiovascularly harder, more difficult in most situations, maybe not all situations, but in most situations. But those impact forces are obviously much less. And I think 
runners like wrapping them kind of like wrapping themselves around like okay why does this why does this dichotomy exist why is it harder from a cardiovascular standpoint uphill but yet it's not as strenuous on my legs muscles and joint as compared to the level condition but what can they take away i always try to drive this back to the training component right and and you've done some work in determining what are the thing what are like muscularly what joints what muscles actually generate the force of uphill running? What do we know about that? And maybe we can translate that to a training perspective. Yeah, so exactly. So the, the, these two differences or these differences between level and running um, are really related to that. Like I said, so you need to you go up the hill by pushing yourself forward along that hill. And um, in level running, you you just bounce around. So for uphill running, if you want to become better at uphill running, um, you have to focus on the and the driving, right? Right. And, um, and and then there's even parts where you're like, you you can and that that comes back into like a lot of people think that that's how you should run on a level, but there there's ways with with foot placement uh, where you can sort of minimize how much you slow down every step as well, um, but. Without going into that debate, I think the driving part for the uphill is, is really there. And that's what we see, too. And um, so the bouncing on the level is often ankle work. Uh, Achilles tendon is definitely doing that a lot. Um, but but going up, if you run, um, there's going to be way more driving from, from higher up, so more proximal. So the hip joints uh, and the knee joints, so that's going to be your glutes, your butt. And um, and your quads um, that's going to be doing more of that. Um, the quad though is is also pretty important in the bounds that we see on the level. Um, but then the other thing is we, we we do all this research on treadmills, right? And and that's great because we can control it. Um, but as you know, as as ultra runners and trail runners, a trail is not a flat, constant grade exactly. thing. Exactly. Um, and and that's where it gets interesting. Where um, there's there's root placements and rocks where you know that okay here i need to use a little bit more of that ankle push um or or the placement of your foot sometimes is flat versus on our treadmill it's it's always your foot is always going uphill too right um and and those are some some small differences there but um it just points to the specificity of uphill running so getting stronger in in that drive is going to be helpful um how do you do that? Some people say we see correlations between strength and trail running and ultra running performance. So you should do strength training. Could be the case. I, I would argue, well, maybe those that correlation that we see that the better trail runners are stronger is not because they spend more time in the gym, but they actually spend more time trail running and being stronger. Um, so yeah, definitely, um, even though there's always relations, we know that people that are good at level running are economical are also the ones that are more economical going up. Um, but if we look at the steeper stuff that might fall apart and that's where, again, we know all of your listeners know there is some folks they know that are really good going up, uh, and, and some folks that are not. And that's where, um, that, that is related to that driving mechanics and, and getting stronger. Uh, the way that I've looked at it as a coach is that, the skill that you learn in level running, because almost everybody listening to this is learning how to run in a level condition. They learn it in grade school. They might take up, you know, couch to their half marathon, you know, training program in college or in adult life or whatever. But the point is, is almost universally with very rare exceptions, people are coming into trail running from road running. And so they're learning to, they're initially learning to run in a level condition. That skill in running is a skill of learning how to run in a level condition only translates so much to running uphill, which only translates so much to running uphill on trails, which, as you mentioned, has obstacles and roots and rocks in the way and things like that. And the, the, I, I think of those as different sports, just like basketball and baseball. Basketball and baseball have you know fundamental skills where strength, skill, speed, eye-hand coordination overlap those sports, but uphill running on technical terrain is a different sport than running on level terrain that are that is interconnected with basically the cardiovascular system. 
that's how that's how I've kind of always viewed it. Yeah, no, I I fully agree. I'm I'm a former track runner. I'm 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 relatively a good level runner. Uh, growing up in the Netherlands, that's all I did. Um, and, and I am not as good on the trails as I am on the road, by far not. I'm really trained and I've optimized and maybe have talent uh, for, for bouncing around what we just talked about. I'm really good at little air resistance, just bounce around. Uh, I'm really economical. From all the running I do, I do get strong cardiovascular. So when I do go uphill, I still have my cardiovascular um, capacity and I'm still a good runner, but I'm not as strong and, and experienced in, 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 in the technique of running uphill, which is, is way less bouncing and it's way more driving. Um, and um, that's why uh, folks I, I, I beat on the road um, just leave me behind on the trails as soon as it goes up. Um, do you analyze that as a scientist when you go out on the trails? You're like, oh man, I know what's going on behind the curtain here, and I potentially should know how to fix it as well. Yes and no. So yeah, it, I just often just use it as an excuse to and go running. It's like I have a couple of folks that we are as good of runners usually, but I beat them on the road and they beat me on the trails. And I, I think like when they do, I'm like, okay, that's just because they're better at it but at the same time i also know like oh but i can become better at it i just need to become stronger and then just thinking should i spend more time in the gym or should i just be running these trails more often and to get that more strength and a different technique but at the same time i also kind of like um doing fast bouncing level workouts. <laughs> you, you um, like doing what you're good at <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I do mile intervals on the level road, and then a few weeks ago, I I decided to do an uphill workout, and it was just a total different ball game. It was just cardiovascular, so much harder, and so much less fun, <laughs> um, and 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 even the great adjusted pace that I got out of it. I mean, I know that you have uh, looked into that too. That 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 didn't do any justice of what I was feeling. Out <laughs> you're there. getting robbed. You're getting robbed by great adjusted pace and normalized graded pace is what you're saying. <laughs> um, okay. So we, we talked at the onset of this podcast about how the steep treadmill, which has made its appearance maybe four or five times on my podcast. Now it's like a guest. I think it's got a person. You guys need to name it. It's got personality and everything. You're going to get your hands on it soon. And, I always want to know, so what's next, right? You, I'm sure you've been chomping at the bit to do some things with this. It's a really cool tool. It's very unique in the research world. There's, you know, another one that, that, uh, that, that exists, but you've got ends of twos, right? Where you guys can pioneer a lot of, uh, a lot of specific research in a very specific area of uphill locomotion. What do you want, what do you want to do with it when you get your hands on it? And you can use this to drum up research subjects. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things I'm, I'm really still trying to, I'm not done with, with the study that we just talked about. Like I said, I was having a hard time even explaining it. I'm definitely not done with it. I want to, dive more into and getting a better understanding of why we, we, if you look at efficiency, mechanical efficiency of uphill running, the numbers are weird. And, and that's because of some of these assumptions, but now going even steeper, that will allow me to, to take that apart even more. Um, so more fundamental sides, trying to get a more relation with physics and mechanical work and, and metabolic power wow. there. Uh, which is probably not what most of your listeners are are excited about. So <laughs> nobody um, paid attention the to other physics thing in is, high school. Is, is, is footwear, right? Yeah. Um, so so for us as scientists, it's kind of the tool to better understand it. And then we 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 often don't know what we're going to do with that later, but we will get there when we get there. Um, but then again, like eventually, a lot of the work that was done 20 years ago was applied for the two-hour marathon, which we didn't know at the time, right? So. Um, but going back to the steep treadmill application side, I think there's still a lot to be doing with footwear. And, and I'm, I'm not sure if you've talked about footwear mm. before, but there is obviously we saw this revolution after the 4% shoe on the road and, 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 and things are happening on the trail. Uh, but uh, a carbon fiber 
played um there it, it's complicated again uh but i, I my idea is that at, at steeper slopes it, it's not going to be really helpful for various reasons um so that's kind of what, what we want to do next as well sort of trying to explore some of these super shoe concepts and, and see if they work as well. And if not, what do we need to do to make them work as well? And then the other part is sort of building on the research about the walk to run transition, sort of the local fatigue, yeah. what's going on there. Um, uh, that was what I was just talking with my student about what she wants to do next year, uh, which would be great if we have that treadmill at that time, sort of going back to, to that question and, and, can we quantify some of that fatigue better? And um, how does it differ when you alternate walking and running versus just walking or versus just running? Um, and then uh, other things we're looking at, again, not on the treadmill, it's sort of like, what's the cost of switchback running where mm. there's a lot of turns. We know theoretically taking a turn doesn't necessarily cost you a lot more energy. Um, and specifically, if we're looking at a steep uphill trail running, you're probably not going as fast. Um, but um, it hasn't been quantified. So ideally, my goal is sort of like as we had our two-hour marathon paper where we could quantify all these different things and how they add up and, and your Humpty Dumpty putting together. Um, I want to build on that, but make it more specific and include trail running applications and uphill running. Uh, too and and uh, at some point we, need, we 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 can use fancy treadmills all we want but we need to get out there too and and and, and quantify these things on the trails um and uh, and see what's going on there and again inform that and 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 let people know i mean there's always advice about you need to hike this section and you need to save energy for later and and this is where you need to bank time and this is where you need to do that and that's all from coaches and experiences but as a scientist i, I want to kind of put the numbers on those things uh in the future and yeah and you hit those. you hit the nail on the head because that was going to be my vote so if i get a vote which i don't so you could take this with a grain of salt if i get a vote if you if if you can use the steep treadmill to get a better fix on when to hike and when to run because that is immediately applicable in a trail and ultra running situation that you can use to gain time, save your legs and all those other things. And the best advice that we have right now is go by feel, right? Yeah. And I've seen advice all over the map. You should hike at this grade and run on these grades and you should hike at this heart rate and run at the, like I've seen all this stuff and I just go, no, 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 no. Nobody knows the answer to this. If you feel like you're better off hiking, go ahead and hike. If you feel like you're better off running, go ahead and run. We can fundamentally describe how running and hiking are different. We went through that a little bit in this podcast, right? Running's more musculoskeletally stressful and hiking in most situations is going to be more cardiovascularly stressful. And you can play that trade-off and there's also, also localized fatigue and things like that that go into it. But we really, we really don't know from a performance context what should drive the run to walk transition in an uphill condition, which I think is a critical component in all of ultramarathoning, not just not just elite ultramarathoning, all of ultramarathoning. If we could do that better, everybody would perform better instantly. Yeah, no, and and but at the same time, like you said, go by feel, and 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 I'm a strong believer in in human self optimization, and 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 we we often know how to do it. Um, and, um, so it often worked, but yeah, there's still things that we can learn and, and tweak it and, uh, do it slightly better. Um, so, so that's what we're trying to find out in the, in the next years in our research too. So coming research, we're going to bring you back on when you start to get into this and I'm going to cajole you just like, you know, just like the CU research lab is cajoled there, <laughs> cajoled their subjects and this research scientists in between them, you and Roger and everything. I can cajole you to come back on the podcast before the research is released and talk a little bit about it. How's that sound? That sounds great. And, and actually now I want your help too, in this respect where, um, the big difference between well, there's a lot of difference between Boulder, Colorado, and, and, and West Massachusetts is sometimes we have great ideas, but I just don't have um, 
my Nicola Giovanelli runner um, or, or Jackson Brill that, that just, or Andy Wecker who, who would be saying like, oh yeah, I, I can run for you if you want and be crazy good at it. Um, uh, we're, we're struggling sometimes. So anybody in New England who's into this kind of stuff, uh, definitely uh, uh, I, I would be willing to come in to run on a steep treadmill and things like that. Just uh, throw me a line and uh, we're, we're going to be... Uh, we need you to do the research that we want to do too. Valter, what's your uh, Twitter handle? How can people get a hold of you? Uh, that's Valter Sina. So um, that's my first name, and then Sinas is S I N A S. Perfect. I'll include links to the show notes in that. Any any great runners, any good runners in your area, which is you're in the Amherst area right now, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Any any yeah, Amherst, Massachusetts. Any good runners in the Amherst, Massachusetts area, Valter needs research subjects to trick into whatever is going to come next out of, out of this steep treble. Go check it out, Valter. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate you coming on. The listeners appreciate it. And more importantly, we appreciate what you do to contribute to what we know about performance. We know it's an ever-complicating problem, but it does absolutely make an impact. And as we look back to the, the Sub 2 saga, that's going to have impact for forever. That's going to be written about in history books, and you played a really important role in that. Cool. Yeah. It was, it was great to chat about these things. Uh, I can do it all day. So Awesome, man. We'll have you back on soon. Cool. Sounds good. All right, folks. There you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Valter for coming on the podcast today. And I really apologize in advance and in retrospect for completely butchering probably your first and your last name. I know we went over it during the audiobook, but dang, man, freaking foreign, complicated names. It's just hard for me. And I apologize. That shouldn't stand in the way of the information, though. So thanks for coming on the podcast and enlightening all of us about how we can actually generate force going uphill and what some of the limiting factors are. Hope everybody enjoyed this podcast. If you have not done so already, head on over to Apple Podcasts or your podcasting platform of choice. Hit subscribe. That is the best, the easiest, the fastest way to get these podcasts right into your platform of choice whenever they come out. Otherwise, you're behind the eight ball. Sometimes you got to wait a day. Sometimes it's several hours. If you want them right away, hit subscribe. It'll get to your inbox or whatever the equivalent is on the podcasting platform immediately upon release, which is every single Thursday morning, week in and week out. Even while I am out on the PCT, yes, I recorded eight of these, eight of them. This is just one of them in advance and banked them all before I head out there to keep the show on the road, even though I'm indisposed and out on the trail. Hope you guys appreciate that effort. I appreciate you guys. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.